on today's episode of The Mythic Masculine. The female is systematically demeaned within our culture, and I don't think it can be otherwise if we have given our allegiance to the male pole of our consciousness. And that, that is tyranny. Tyranny is the male element turning its back on the female, demeaning the female, and going it alone. Mm-hmm. To me, that, that is the description of, of the tyrant. And, and the submission of the hero is a submission to reality, which is being itself and all the ways in which it can inform us and dance with us. What does it mean to be a man today? The old ideas of masculinity are dissolving, and the new expressions are just beginning to rise. In the era of Me Too and biospheric collapse, how might we look to the old myths and archetypes for guidance to navigate this space between stories? This podcast explores the historical, cultural, and contemporary voices that are shaping this dynamic conversation of the emerging masculine. Greetings, dear listener. I'm your host, Ian McKenzie. My guest today is Philip Shepard, an international authority on embodiment. He is the author of two books, New Self, New World, and Radical Wholeness, along with the developer of the Embodied Present Process a series of practices for people to undo the stress and imbalances that are caused by disconnection and find instead what it means to rest in the deeper, connected wisdom of the body. Philip's personal path was shaped by his adventures as a teenager when he cycled alone through Europe, the Middle East, India, and Japan. By his deep commitment to and studies of bodywork and by his experiences as an actor playing lead roles on stages in London, New York, Chicago, and Toronto. In our conversation today, we explore why living in the head, as many men do, guarantees a state of loneliness, how to tap into the emergent intelligence of life, and why the future of humanity may depend on our ability to finally come home to our body and the earth. We begin with a guided presence practice led by Philip Shepard. Enjoy. Bring your awareness as gently as you can to your energy, just how it's showing up, and bring your awareness to it without in any way judging it or trying to organize it or trying to get it right. Just feel your energy as it is now. And there may be scattered bits to it. There may be energy that feels a little like fuzzballs. There's energy in your body, and you may also notice a a sort of swirling of energy outside your body. And honor every bit of that energy by noticing it, by locating it as specifically as you can. And as you're feeling it, Parts of it may feel like a mist hanging around you, hanging within you, this, this mist of energy. 
and feel it and bring your awareness to it. And as your awareness lands on it, that mist will begin to precipitate by itself. It will turn to a gentle rain that descends. And that mist will rain within you. It will drop down through the body to the soles of the feet. Every little bit of energy you notice precipitates, turns to rain, and gently falls down through the body. And similarly with that swirl of energy just outside of you, you bring your awareness to it as gently, as specifically as you can, and it precipitates, it turns to rain, and returns to the earth. Notice especially any lingering bits of energy and give them your love and feel that love turn the mist to rain and feel the rain descend so that your energy is at rest on the earth. And bring your awareness as gently as you can to all the sensations of breath as it moves through your body. And again, there is no right way to breathe. There is no destination or expectation. See if you can just receive those sensations of the breath. Receive them without judging or naming or trying to get anything right. Each breath is a wave of sensation through the body. And find out for yourself what it means to just Receive every little sensation and receive it without needing to organize it or judge it. What does it mean to move into that place of simple, passive, wakeful receptivity? And as you receive all those sensations of the body releasing to the in-breath and releasing to the out-breath, allow your awareness to gently dilate into the world around you and discover what it is to just receive every sound of the world around you? And what does it mean to receive it as the pure vibration that it is? What does it mean to allow this sound to pass through you, felt but not named, 
So there's no need to identify or categorize. Discover for yourself what it means to just receive those sounds. And then allow your awareness to dilate a little further into the felt present and just receive the felt present as a whole. There's nothing to get right. There's nothing to hold on to. There is everything to receive. And be aware of your body still at rest. And that wide open receptivity to the present. Philip Shepard, welcome to the show. Thank you, thank you. Mm. (laughs) What a beautiful entrance for me, <laughs> for one, mm. and for the listener as well to to begin in such a way before we begin our conversation here. I feel my entire being sort of drop down to a level of yeah, receptivity uh, and surrender, you know, with some sense of where we maybe we go and also a trust that wherever we go, it'll be interesting. <laughs> Yeah, I find, uh, you know, I find we confuse the issue of being present. Um, you know, if somebody says to you, just be present, uh, it's like, <laughs> I don't know, it's almost like the alarm bells go off and, oh, okay, mm-hmm. give me a minute. And, and you try to organize yourself into this state of presence. Um, and, and, you know, in a way, that's the opposite of presence. For me, because when I'm truly present, I am being organized by the present. I'm not organizing myself. And the more, the more um, tenaciously I seek to organize myself, the more, in, a, in effect, I'm buffering myself from the present. So I find this mm. equivalence between receptivity and presence, that if you're fully receptive, you're fully present. If you're fully present, you're fully receptive and it's such a different thing to say to someone just receive it's so much in a way less complicated than just be present Mm. Hmm. i really appreciate that distinction and uh, it touches upon actually i think a key piece that i'd love to spiral back to later Uh, and first i'd love to hear at present uh, where you are right now for the listener you know just to describe you know where in the world where in your being so they also get a sense of of you in this moment. Yeah, I um, I'm at home, and um, I'm pretty blessed in that regard. I home is Toronto, but um, I live on a little island. You can only get there by ferry, and uh, there are no cars on the island except for service vehicles. And it's this really close knit community and 
three minutes from my house is a beach where I can go swimming in Lake Ontario. And hmm. um, it feels like the community is nestled in this embrace of nature. And yet we're only 10 minutes from the hub of downtown. So it's a, it's a, hmm. it's a really nourishing juxtaposition. I believe I've been there, actually. Uh, yeah, I, I worked on a film called Occupy Love with a director, Velcro Ripper, uh, who I believe also lived there he for did, a time. He did, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And we actually finished the film on, on the island there. And I recall exactly, yeah, the beauty of being on the shore, looking out and, and seeing the city like right there, but also sort of almost this, this like floating, beautiful bubble, you know, just, just off from the mayhem. <laughs> yeah and how how incredible it was yeah it it's uh there's a there's a book about the island called 10 minutes and Ten Thousand miles and the you know basically it's saying yeah it's a 10 minute ferry ride but it feels like you're ten thousand miles in another time and in another place yeah wow hmm. i'd love to bring the listener into how we first connected um which i believe was Perhaps you'd seen some of my earlier films or a short film or something. And then, and then, yeah, I, I think I recall getting an inbox, um, you know, email uh, where you'd mentioned, you know, the, some of the work you did and just, you know, put it on my radar was the feeling. And I do recall uh, having a look then. And, you know, I feel there's something in me that, that almost has an instinct for things that are before my time to, to engage with them. You know, like uh, a sense of like, whoa, 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 this is actually so important and I'm not ready for it is kind of the feeling I, I believe I had because I also subscribed to your newsletter and actually kept it over the years, you know, and actually appreciated every time it came and I would tune in and I would again have that same feeling of like, whoa, 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 this is actually too, it's too important. Uh, and it's not my time yet. Wow. You know, I don't know, I don't know where that comes from, but yeah. And so it was actually more recently now, um, you know, experiences in my own life as well as perceiving where the culture is and also, um, you know, hearing you in some other work, another podcast as well that I think finally, yeah, something clicked and I realized at least, you know, very cursorily, cursorily what uh, I feel that you've been speaking to in, in your body of work. And so it's very exciting for me to, to finally be in conversation in particular though, around this theme of the mythic masculine that there's for me that there's this using your lens as a way in feels actually really uh, profound and, and vital in in this wider conversation, you know, both for men as individual and all genders, even and and also the culture. So I just want to offer gratitude that uh, you know the the gratitude to you and whoever tapped me on the shoulder and said, you know, hang on, it's not quite time for you, but you know the moment will come, and I feel the moment is now here. Yeah, that mythic realm so deeply informs me, so illuminates my challenges my place in the world um i return to it over and over and you know it boy it 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 sheds light on our cultural associations with the masculine in a way that shows many of them to be toxic um i don't know if you want to go into that but uh yeah, well, I'd love to start first with, in some ways, like a bit of the ground of your body of work, because I do feel like that that does provide a helpful um, yeah, foundation to then go into these deeper layers. And 
maybe to start first you could speak to i know it's an epic saga um of uh the story of i believe you you starting out as an actor and then the dissatisfaction that came to you or the recognizing of the maybe insanity of the culture and i understand you wanted an epic bike trip as part of your uh sort of self-crafted initiation and and that led you in many ways onto your path so i know it's a big story but i'd love to just lay that as some of the groundwork uh for the listener to know where you've come from i'd be really happy to it's um you know, I was a teenager in growing up in the suburbs of Toronto, and it was as though everyone around me is acting out this fantasy, and I'm being tacitly invited to, to join in. You'll do well. And I could feel my being corroded bit by bit by the assumptions the ways of knowing the the limitations the the value system and i i mean i fought it <laughs> you know diligently i in fact i was in a sort of a rage as a teenager f- feeling myself being pulled down feeling myself diminished by this and I guess something in me recognized that if I didn't get out of my culture, I would be subsumed. And I'd had the good fortune to, at the age of 17, I saw a, a play from Japan, this ancient, ancient tradition called no theater. And it, I was dissolved by the experience. I was in tears um, shaken to my core on the one hand. On the other hand, I, I had no idea how it had had that effect on me. So the two things sort of went together and I resolved to, I mean, I didn't have any money. I'm 18 at the time, resolved to go to England and buy a bicycle and head off for Japan. And, you know, I reasoned that if I were heading in the right direction and I didn't stop pedaling, I'd get there. And it sort of turned out to be true. And, and, I cycled through Europe and the Middle East and India and and eventually on to Japan and passed through so many different ways of understanding what it means to be human. And on a bike, you're porous to that. You're wide open to that. And I felt them and, and went with them. And in Japan, I studied no theater and I discovered why I'd had no idea how how it had had such an effect on me because there is this principle in no theater uh, in the Japanese culture itself that that hara or what they call the belly is the center of your truth it's the ground of your being it's the source um, of all expression. And in no theater, every arm that lifts is is coming from that source deep in the body. And, you know, when a head turns and sees, it's seeing from that deep place. And I'd never encountered such a thing in my culture. No one, you know, was in touch with that resource. So that was a huge part of my growing ability to ask questions of my own culture. Because I think the most difficult thing is to question an assumption you've taken into your being before you're old enough to pose a question. 
And so when I came back to Toronto, uh, I was gone two years. I, I actually <laughs> suffered culture shock for the first time in my two-year absence coming home. And what was so intimately familiar was at the same time utterly bizarre and confusing. And so that, that tension between me and my culture had, had found a way forward. Mm. Mm. This ability to perceive or to, to tap into this other intelligence um, centered in the, in the Bellevue, the, centered in the belly or the pelvic floor, or, you know, I've heard different language around that, um, does feel like a key component of this new, or not even new, maybe an older understanding of where the intelligences lie within the body or where information can be brought forth. And I feel like when, you know, hearing about this too from your work, it was a revelation in the sense that, I, that I'm still trying to really integrate, right? That's still trying to, you know, intellectually, I kind of start to feel, oh, that's interesting. But, but I was struck by... Years ago, back in, might have been 2005, actually, so 15 years ago, I did my first Vipassana uh, retreat. Actually, my only one. <laughs> to the, you know, the 10-day silent um, under uh, Goenka, which is a, you know, a, a style, uh, centers all over the world. And my experience there was profound, but it also was, I think the language you've used is, I was, I was encouraged to listen to the body or to observe the body. Right, and and that was profound in that again, it, I started to become aware of the, just the subtle, minute, changing phenomena and and sensation that is the body, which I'm really grateful for. Uh, and I, I was able to even illuminate more about my mind, this um, this kind of quick reactivity, right? That that generally is the way it is for so many. It's you know, there's some kind of stimulus, and then there's a quick reaction, and there's no gap between. And I feel the mindfulness in that regard allowed me to develop the capacity to to catch that moment and then perhaps decide otherwise you know on my best days maybe <laughs> but i but i feel you're even speaking to something deeper and you had this phrase actually in your writing um or maybe another interview which i really liked which is this sense that it's not only to you know listen to the body but actually to come from that intelligence you know it's a very different thing and so i would love to you to speak a little bit more about that like that distinction actually because i think people might hear this too and be like yeah you know i'm you know i do yoga i listen to the body or something like that but there's a whole other you know revelatory understanding which i feel is behind what you're what you discovered then and and that you've you know been uh deepening with since yeah i i you know we are such a top down culture we are so allied to that intelligence in the head and and it's an assumption that's hard to question because well that's where the brain is that's of course that's where i think that's where my center is um but <laughs> you know in reality the body processes a billion times more information than we can be conscious of a billion to one and so you know, the presumption of listening to the body sets up a, a metaphor that basically says, well, you're separated from your body by a wall, and the very best you can do is to put your ear to that wall to find out what's going on on the other side of it. And mm. um, that's, you know, that's that's such a deep paradigm, and it estranges us. It alienates us from that 
phenomenally subtle, attuned intelligence. So I, you know, I understand my body as a resonator. And my body resonates to the world around me. And I can't possibly know in an objective way what is passing through my body, but I can feel it. And, you know, what happens in our culture is the the body, that spaciousness of your being, gets clotted and condensed and stuck. And, and it's like taking a singing bowl and, and stuffing it full of rags. And, and then it doesn't resonate. It just goes clunk, clunk. And, and when the body is baffled in that way and compartmentalized and, and consolidated, the present ceases to exist as companionship as as living guidance mm. and when because you have no access to it and when you have no access to it then the only recourse is to be in your head and guide yourself and so rather than listening to the body what my work aims at is to listen to the world through the body mm. and that requires the surrender to the natural spaciousness of your being. And when that spaciousness opens up, the present is no longer something out there to be noticed. You feel the present within your being, within your body. It's passing through you at every moment. I mean, every breath you take is drawing into your body the exhalations of forests that are turning into you. And then you, on an, on an outbreath, you turn into carbon dioxide that floats out and becomes wood in trees. So that, that exchange is endless and we dull ourselves to it. Hmm. Hmm. Yeah. You made me think of something, a powerful image of the sense that the, the modern masculine or the modern man, and, and I'd say even myself, I think contends so often with this omnipresent existential loneliness. I think it'd be fair to say. And part of the coping strategies with that, I feel, are lots of things that we actually recognize, like uh, sex or achievement in work, right? Or domination of the natural world, or uh, actually a lot of the language and the imagery that comes even to what feels like a kind of um, renaissance of, you know, body hacking and optimization you know, in quote, healthy eating. I know a lot of men are caught in this paradigm of looking to the body as a machine, right? That it's about hacking the body to, you know, kind of do the things you want it to do to its ultimate efficiency. You know, Tim Ferriss and these other people come to mind. And for me, it's missing something so vital because it feels like it just extends that very paradigm that you've just said, this idea that, um, that the body is something to be managed. And if only we could manage it well enough, you know, optimize it enough, somehow that would assuage this existential loneliness of which actually, you know, so much of the culture reinforces um, this loneliness or this separation, just as I'm realizing too that language, right, separates us constantly. And so I really appreciate this kind of sense of 
uh, attunement or sense of you know orienting that the body is actually how one is able to be in relationship with the world and the inability to be in relationship with the body or to think of the body simply as something carting around the mind, right? Um, of which so often is the case with um, how, how we see it, um, that there's a real consequence to that. And, and there's real consequence to the world, actually, um, you know, like we see in the destruction and all the rest. You know, I've talked in podcasts in the past about this mania for doing, like where does this mania for doing all the time come from uh, when, we, when we really are able to see it? Yeah, there is so much I'd like to speak to in in what you just raised. Um, Aloneness is inevitable if you're living in the head. Mm. So the intelligence of the head, I mean, it's brilliant. You know, I'm not about throwing it away. It's glorious, but it, it only fulfills its true potential when it is in concert with the intelligence of the body. The intelligence in the head organizes, analyzes, abstracts. Its strength is perspective. Mm. And we need perspective. But, but the essence of finding perspective is that you step back from something. You distance yourself from it. Wow. And living in the head, you know, we can distance ourselves from those sensations teeming through the body and from the sensational world, and the world is shattered into mere objects and things, as is the body, and we feel alone because we are living in a realm that is distant, estranged, alienated from the world. And, and there, I mean, there, there is no aloneness. That I, you know, in, in the sense that everything you are is supported by and carried forward by the world, just as you support and carry the world forward with everything you do. All there is is companionship, but but to live in the head is to desensitize yourself to the reality of that companionship. And when you live in the head— your obsession, and I think this is our cultural obsession, is with organizing. We organize everything. I mean, we organize our emotions. We organize <laughs> our thoughts. We we organize, you know, our relationships. We organize our responses to other people. Oh, there's, you know, Sally and and before I've had a chance to feel her presence, I'm already my response is already organized. You know, so so it's not to throw organization away. It's you know, we, we were able to meet up for this interview because we were both organized around the, the time. But when it becomes an obsession, um it it occludes the present, it blinds you to the present. And and there are, you know, there's um, there's an old, you know, it's not a new thing. We, Plato, so we're we're you know two fifty B.C. Uh, no, no, sorry, three fifty B.C. Um, there's a dialogue Timaeus, and this very wise man Timaeus is asked, "How did the gods fashion us?" And he said, "Well." First, they they fashioned this divine orb based on the spheres of the heaven. 
And they looked at this orb and they realized this, this thing wouldn't be able to get around. It needed a vehicle. So they grew it arms and legs and a body. So there, there's 250, 350 BC. The body is perceived as a vehicle. And those in attendance listening to Timaeus were full of appreciation for his words because they could see the truth of it. So, so, you know, for well over 2000 years, the body has been vilified, demeaned as, as a vehicle. And meanwhile, it is what hunter-gatherer cultures rely on for their survival, because that attunement to the world, it just transcends any kind of objective knowing. You are you are feeling the currents of the present. You are feeling the animals in the woods around you. You are feeling danger. You are feeling water when you need it. You are feeling the medicine of a plant being offered to you when you need it. You know, so there is this phenomenal emergent intelligence that is held by the world that every other creature relies on and we have contracted into our heads um, and basically dulled ourselves to it in the arrogance of thinking that the the head is the supreme ruler of the self. Mm. Wow, thank you for that. About two years ago, I think it was, I, you know, Facebook's great at reminding me of, you know, previous posts. And one post uh, in particular basically was me admitting defeat. I basically was saying, I... I was proceeding in a fashion that, you know, if I could only complete enough tasks, you know, if, if I could only, you know, manage my life or, or, or complete what felt needed to be done, but it was always playing catch up. You know, it was always playing catch up. It was never enough. It was never enough. And, you know, maybe when I was younger, younger days, I could play that game, you know, and keep playing it and just, you know, essentially uh, uh, force my body into constant submission or constant willingness to, uh, to be you know, follow through on the tasks, which, you know, it's funny enough when you think about the culture as it is, right? Of course, um, so much of the, uh, you know, intoxicants or stimulants, all of these things are constantly uh, forcing the body into different states. If what is what it feels like, you know, whether it's, yeah, you know, glass of alcohol to like come down or the coffee to perk you up or, you know, all these ways in which it's like, there's, there's no trust that the body is actually telling you what is needed in the moment. And, for me, like I said, you know, I kind of hit that wall where I was just like, I just can't do this anymore. Like I, I was exhausted. And from that place, I feel there was the invitation into some other kind of intelligence. And this is what I feel like you're speaking to. And, and for me, this is why that moment was actually so profound to me to then be able to tune into your work, because this is where I feel the threshold is. The willingness to surrender is the gateway into that intelligence. And that intelligence is manifest all around us. Uh, you know, I'm thinking of slime molds. Hmm. A slime mold is just a, a collection of amoebae, amoebas. Uh, you know, they come together and they form this lump that you'll find in the forest in rotting wood and stuff. Well, slime molds can tell time. Slime molds can solve mazes. You know, there are these experiments with slime molds, and there's no brain in a slime mold. There's no individual. 
individual. It's just this collection of amoebas, but but their their intelligence is an emergent phenomenon. It is it is it's not something that is built piece by piece. It's something that emerges when an organic whole comes into being. And you see that in ant colonies. You know, they they thought the queen was the basically the leader of the ant colony and and this wonderful woman, um uh Deborah Gordon spent years studying harvester ants and found out, you know what, no one is in charge. No one, in fact, no ant ever gives a, an order or an instruction to any other ant. It is, in that regard, it's unmanaged chaos. And yet, and yet these little miracles happen. Uh, she, she speaks of watching one um, ant colony and the the monsoon rains were about to come and they they started building a little turret around the entrance to the ant colony and the rains came and the colony didn't flood now ants only live for a year so none of those ants remembered oh you know what last time about about this this time of year those rains came let's build a turret they weren't alive then and and if if all the ants had had the message time to build a turret it would have been a disaster if too few had had the message it wouldn't have been built it, there is an attunement to the world the world is is summoning us it's calling to us and and it's calling us to harmonize Nature, you know, the, we've lost track of what nature loves. Mm. We've 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 decided to oppose what nature loves, and and you know, you look at nature, and well, clearly nature loves change because it's never the same twice and clearly nature loves diversity because all it's doing is creating this profusion of 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 diversity and difference and you know through the the course of evolution and nature loves service there is no creature there is no plant that is not created into service the mm. earthworm burrowing beneath our feet the the shark in the ocean's depths, the the tree outside your window, they are all in service. And what's happened in our culture with this contraction into the head and this sense of being alone in the world is when change happens, we resent it because we've got our plans and now they're upset. And diversity is something to fear because our agenda of control depends on conformity you can't control what difference you, you can only control conformity and service well it's the most natural thing in the world that we serve only ourselves and that's what it's come to mm. well what's in the way of surrender you know and i say this as a maybe two men listening and again anyone can likely hear um, a response in this or a, a relevancy, but you know, because I I can say for myself, you know, this idea of what what's in the way of surrendering to the body, and and for me, it feels like trust. Yeah. 
you know, it's a question of trust. It's like, what, what could the body possibly tell me? Or, or, you know, if I didn't do that thing that I feel like I need to be doing in terms of organization, you know, then what's going to happen? Am I going to, you know, I don't know, fail at it or look poor or there's all these, you know, ways in which things get in the way of the surrender. But I feel it's even deeper than that. You know, like there's some kind of almost like essential trust that maybe has never been or maybe was there very young, you know, that, that somehow got lost. And so that's manifested now um, in men in particular as well as you're right, this command and control, you know, obsession and yet this existential loneliness, you know, on the other hand, um, and I'll go even further to say, you know, even this question around emotions, which often feel like they live in the body uh, or come through the body, is I experience even a core distrust of emotion. As in, you know, I literally formulated this question with, a, with another friend, a male friend, at one point where he's really asking me about this. And I was like, what's the point of feelings? You know, and I was really asking it from the place of almost like the, the perfect observer, you know, like the perfect in the tower of the citadel of perspective, looking down and saying, what, like, what is the, what the, the question comes from, yeah, a, an implicit lack of trust that they lead anywhere useful because it's messy, because it's chaotic, because, you know, all the rest. And so, yeah, I, I just feel like there's something in that threshold, you know, that, that clearly you've, you've navigated. And it's almost like I would love to hear what that journey was like for you and what was on the other side of it. Um, wow. It, you know, the, the answer that comes to me, what's in the way of surrender would be the Neolithic revolution. I, I, I mean, I mean the ways in which that agenda has shaped who we are, what we value, what we fear. Um, you know, the Neolithic revolution, you know, it was, by by 6000 BC it was well underway in most of Europe and and it it's it was precipitated by agriculture so we shifted our allegiance and when you when you imagine pushing a seed into the ground for the first time everything changes mm. it's like it's it that piece of ground now belongs to you. There was no ownership of Mother Earth prior to that, but no, that that's now yours. And the little shoot growing up beside your plant, that's now a weed. Weeds didn't exist until you push that seed into the ground. And the animal come along coming along, it's vermin. It has to be killed because it might eat your plant. And the tree putting your plant in shade, it needs to be cut down because your plant needs more sun. So so we we left our attunement that guided us and carried us and provided for us. And, you know, when I say provided for us, the, the, the Magdalenian, the late Paleolithic, has been called the original leisure society because, because cultures were so skilled, so attuned to the natural world that they needed 15, maybe 20 hours a week to look after their needs. And the rest was was time to attune and tell stories and feel. And your question, what's the point of feeling? I mean, it's such a great, apt, modern question. Mm-hmm. Um, I, think we're, I think we're defeated to some extent by our self-absorption. And our self-absorption tells us we can organize the self and get it right. 
And so our, it's as though we're taking the spotlight of our attention and we're turning it off the world and placing it on the self. And, and you're casting the world into darkness. And now, you know, the most critical relationship you have in the whole of the world is between the divided parts of yourself, the part that is watching and trying to organize and the part that is feeling and being organized. Mm. And, and so emotions become something to, um, to make right, to understand, to, and, and it's like staring at the finger instead of looking to the moon that it's pointing at. Emotions are a lens. They pull some aspect of the world into focus. Something matters here, whether it's love or anger, whatever it is. You're, now, if you, if you put your attention on the emotion, you lose the world. You fall back into this, you know, black hole of the self where you think endlessly about your own thoughts and, and try to refine them and, and um, get them right. And I think, you know, the, the relationship we have with the body sitting up in the head, treating it as a vehicle, this top-down relationship, that is our essential sort of primordial relationship on which all other relationships are modeled. And if you have a top-down relationship with the body, you will have a top-down relationship with the body of the earth. I, I don't think it can be any other way. And so then your, your, your necessity is to organize it and get it right. And, and this you know, our whole culture, if you don't mind me going on, our whole culture is gathered around the fantasies of the tyrant. And those fantasies prohibit a surrender. And when you, you know, when you look at mythological tyranny, Joseph Campbell is so astute in describing the tyrant. He calls the tyrant the man of self-achieved independence. Mm. Now, that is the American dream. Self-achieved independence, I mean, that's what people yearn for. It's what they crave. It's what they, if they work hard enough, they can get it. And, and it's a nightmare. I mean, if you actually succeed, if you make all the, all the money in the world and can retreat into independence so that you don't need to do your laundry. You, you don't need to answer the phone. You don't need to drive your car. You, you know, and you've got in this mansion on the hill with its perimeter fence, everything you need. You, you end up in the scenario of Howard Hughes, who was, you know, multimillionaire before anyone else. And he ended up, you know, in a dark room with only four people he would interact with, and everything he touched, he needed a Kleenex um, to, to interface. He, he couldn't touch it directly because of the germs. So, so the tyrant is essentially afraid of death and, and fortifies against it and controls against it. And, and, you know, we see that in our culture, our well, we just, we have to live as long as possible. And when I headed off on my bike at 18, I, I, 
honestly didn't expect to come back alive. I mean, how do you, you know, how do you cycle alone through through the Middle East and expect to to come out unscathed? But but I knew that if I didn't leave, a, another kind of death was inevitable. And so that, you know, that quality of service that that I spoke of, that nature loves, into which we are born, to which we blind ourselves by retreating into the head. There is a there is a whispering and and you know in mythic terms it's the it's it, you are born with a cluster of gifts that no one else in the world has been born with and the world is calling you to put those gifts into service and and when you attune through the body and feel those gifts being summoned that is the call and then you've got the choice do you do you flinch and retreat from that? And if you do, you end up in a realm that Joseph Campbell described as the realm of organized inadequacy, mm. which is what our lives become. Or you risk your life without without any guarantee of success, but you're alive stepping forward into it. Mm. <laughs> Beautiful. Two things for me sort of swim up. Um, one is just to just to offer this image that um, I studied many years with another teacher named Stephen Jenkinson, who I've referenced a few times on this. Um, but he, in his book, Die Wise, um, he actually has this gorgeous chapter of which he speaks to the sort of single most significant love affair of one's life is not with another person, it's with the body. And how he phrases or how he writes the chapter is actually, you know, as you come into the world, that it's this kind of like courtship into the body where you you discover it and you're learning it and this, you know, relationship is built. And um, by the end of life, that so often, for at least in this culture, because of the very things that you've spoken to, as soon as the body, you know, quote, starts failing, no longer does what it's supposed to anymore, all these things, so many curse it, right? So many say, now it's like you're being betrayed by the body because it can't keep doing what it did, you know, when it was 20 and the whole thing. And he frames that differently to say, look, this is the moment when it's like a love affair in reverse, that you're now saying goodbye to this, you know, being that you've been in such a dance with. And most, you know, their whole lives never knew it, you know, maybe until that moment. Uh, and so there's just that, you know, it brings up uh, like tears in me even to feel it that way. And then the way that you're speaking with such, kind of eloquent magnificence, actually, that that this, you know, interbeingness is. And then the other piece, too, with this hero's journey, uh, I really love this reframe, in a way, that the the journey that is often understood, or at least, you know, that hero's journey is often this idea of coming out into the world, but sort of coming back triumphant, uh, you know, and, and, and achieving, and, you know, has all this heroic undertones. Um, and yet, there's a different take on that, I think, that you're speaking to, which perhaps touches upon another, you know, language, langu- languaging that I've heard you use uh, around this idea of the head perhaps being seen as the masculine, you know, and the body is the feminine. And I understand, you know, for some listeners, there's a challenge of that to use gendered language. Um, and there's something in that which I feel is is just, you know, is is beautifully ordained, actually, with that language. But I wonder why you also feel that is still 
you know, useful to use language like that to differentiate between these two intelligences? You know, in the simplest terms, it's how I feel it within my body. And everywhere, I mean, the, the, with the Neolithic Revolution, we made a journey inside the body. So, so like that Japanese concept of hara, in the Neolithic, the, the belly was the center of thinking. And you can see that in, like in some burial sites where there's a navel stone. And of course, we have a headstone. No, the head is the center. No, for them, the navel was. And you can see it in their art and you see it in language. Um, the, you know, our word navel, belly button, actually mean, you know, gave, um, turned into the word hub, the hub of a wheel, the still center around which everything revolves. And with the, uh, with the Neolithic revolution, as we began to assert ourselves on the world and take control of it, you can see in language how that center rises up through the body. So in Homer's day, it's in the chest. And Homer, you know, he uses this word in his original Greek, freen or freenies, over and over and over. And, and in the original Greek, it meant mind, and it also meant diaphragm. And I, I find it interesting that people aren't more curious about that. But, but in that phenomenal Hellenic culture, the center of thinking was in, in the diaphragm. And then by Plato's day, it was in the head. So there's that long journey that's been made up into the head. And I mean, our... Our challenge is the hero's challenge specifically because, you know, again, good to go back to Joseph Campbell. He describes the hero as the man of self-achieved surrender. So that's not imposed surrender. That's not surrender to tyranny. Hmm. That is a surrender to your being and you know, you, you you spoke earlier about about the imperative of doing and how that's hooked us. And then there's this, what I experience as a more, as the female pole of my consciousness is being. And I completely respect listeners who, who flinch at the gendered um, assignations, but it's made in the recognition that each of us embodies female and male. And until we honor both of those within us, we will resist wholeness. And we have, you know, the, the intelligence in the head, as I've said, it, it stands apart, it analyzes, it systemizes, it, it takes charge. And for me, male energy in general, asserts and focuses. There's this male focus and this assertion, and both of those are necessary, but they're complemented by what I feel as female energies, which female energies gather and hold without holding on. Mm. And it's a very special quality. So I... I feel that intelligence in the pelvic bowl 
as one that comes into felt relationship rather than known relationship. The head yearns for known relationship. And it attunes, it feels the world in its wholeness. It feels every aspect of the world as an expression of that wholeness. And our journey away from that intelligence in the belly is a journey that has led us to demean the female in, in how the way it's expressed in women, the, the way we, um, come to demean our own intelligence. It's, it's, you know, the, the left side is sinister. You know, that's what left means. The right side is, is assertive and right. And, and, and we're all about the front of the body and, and its assertions and we lose the mysterious, informing, supportive realm of the back. So the the female is systematically demeaned within our culture, and I don't think it can be otherwise if we have given our allegiance to the male pole of our consciousness. And that that is tyranny. Tyranny is the male element turning its back on the female, demeaning the female, and going it alone. Mm. To me, that, that is the description of, of the tyrant. And, and the submission of the hero is a submission to reality, which is being itself and all the ways in which it can inform us and dance with us. Mm. I'm thinking of trauma and how trauma plays a role. It feels like in interrupting the capacity to surrender or the capacity to tap into the intelligence. And I wonder how that's shown up in, in your work and, and with people um, that you, you do this work with. Yeah, I mean, trauma trauma's a huge subject. I, I think that what most distinctly characterizes trauma is a dissociation from the body. Mm. Well, by that standard, we are all traumatized. And, and, and we, you know, we are personally traumatized and we inflict trauma. Um, it, it can't be, I don't think it can be otherwise. So there are so many reasons to dissociate from the body. There there's a, there's a point in your life when you are not capable of holding um, all that you're feeling, and especially when when there is cruelty and violence. You, you you can't afford to feel it because it would demolish you, mm-hmm. and so you put it on hold, and you it sits in the body, incapable of being felt. And how, you know, how to come back to that? You know, there are brilliant modalities. I really, you know, in my work, I don't ever put the focus on emotion. Mm-hmm. Emotions come, emotions go, emotions are welcome, emotions are blessings. But to come back to the actual almost physiological sensations of the body. So 
the pelvic floor, for example, is a is a common area. It's you know it's 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 not just um, rejected um, for 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 reasons of abuse in a personal way. Our whole culture has rejected it, and so there's a quality of just gently, gently beginning to feel the pelvic floor release to the breath. Now, technically, the pelvic floor is a diaphragm in the body. You know, there's the thoracic diaphragm above it, and the pelvic floor is there to move with the diaphragm. But in our culture, it becomes immobilized and held in tension. So to begin, to begin to release the pelvic floor to the breath, you know, it's a, it's a gentle thing. It's a thing that needn't be rushed. It is an awakening, awakening not just of sensation, but of your ability to ground yourself. Mm. And I think the energies of trauma are like lightning, and, and it is dangerous. And it's the way a lightning rod on a barn carries that lightning safely into the earth. To me, the pelvic floor is the ground of your being. It's where you rest within yourself. It's where you come home to your deepest truth. And to reclaim the pelvic floor, to bring sensation back to it, is to regain for yourself that sense of how how to ground, how to make safe, the release of those energies without being being completely thrown off balance by it. Mm. How does your work or practices, and, and I know you've offered a degree of, uh, I'm a little aware of, you know, embodiment meditations and things like that, and you, of course, teach workshops around the world, and I'm curious, what, uh, what are the, some of those pathways in that you offer people to begin to, you know, reconnect, to resensitize? You know, and maybe in particularly what you've seen happens in men in particular, actually, when they begin, you know, doing this work. Yeah, I, um, we we grow as as young children into what is modeled around us, and what is modeled around us in terms of the body is a stop and go structure that becomes mechanized. And one of the ways in which that stop-and-go nature shows up is with the breath. So what we hear all around us is people stopping their breath when they need to think, as I'm doing now. It, I mean, if once you bring attention to it, you realize the breath is always being held, being held, and, and there's this revelation that 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 you can come to terms with that you can actually think and breathe at the same time. Mm. But we're, but we're, you know, if the body, I think the breath is the primary means by which we disclose the sensations of our being. And if we're always, if it's on a leash like that, and we're stopping it intermittently, not consciously, but as a pattern, um, we are, thwarting the body's intelligence and and those i mean a lot of my most of my work in a way is about noticing patterns and softening through them 
And I find it interesting in that regard that the word pattern comes from the Latin pater, which means father. There is a a male authority to these patterns that we can challenge and and grow beyond. And, I mean, men, it's... We are, we are in such a confused place at the moment because, because the, the maleness that is demonstrated for us is a tyrannical maleness. Mm. And, and, it's, and it's toxic. And if that's what maleness is, how do you become male? Um, there's a great line going back to Japanese no theater. The, the founder of no theater had this line, it is a mistake to understand a lack of gentleness as strength. And I, I just love that. I, you know, to me, maleness means nothing out of a relationship with femaleness. It's like light means nothing without dark. These opposites illuminate each other. They are they are complementary. There's a creative tension, and and so how to find the male relationship to the female being of the body is a is a huge challenge. And it it you know your when you spoke to our domination of the body. That's you know thousands of years old, and and where we grow, it's interesting because where we get beyond it, one of the ways is in sports, because there's there's you know Roger Federer is not in his head calculating the trajectory of the tennis ball and its spin, and he is feeling it, and there is a delay. When you make a conscious decision, it, it, it's, there's actually this delay um, that happens, a one-second delay in enacting it. Well, if, if you were, that's why when, you know, when you're first learning tennis, it, it's all kind of akimbo. It, it, it can't coordinate. But then you go into that place where you're just feeling it. And that is the body attuning to, to the breeze, to the spin of the ball, to the, the opponent's demeanor to everything and so that that one percent or, or one billionth of our intelligence learns to defer to the body and there is a quality that that is spoken of of being in the zone mm-hmm. well being in the zone is the marriage of male and female because you know there's there you you read there's a great book by Michael Murphy called In the Zone and he's got he's got hundreds of descriptions of athletes describing it and there is this soft uncalculating ease to everything and it's though it's as though you're being carried rather than than trying to dominate and there's one guy Catfish Hunter who pitched a perfect game and he was asked afterwards what did it feel like and he said well I I didn't question it the whole time. Mm. I just let it be. And I knew that if I questioned it, I'd lose it. Mm. So there's a guy who has made that surrender and is in that brilliant 
effective, harmonized union of the male and the female. Mm. Hmm. I think of flow states, I think, which yeah. is also yeah, similar language. And I, I really love that um, link being made there in your examples. And the part that comes to me too is this sense of, you know, the samurai have been thought to have been in flow state, you know, and, and yet they're maybe carrying out political assassinations or like, so I, I'm curious to know, you know, the context also seems to matter about when this harmonization or how this harmonization is then put in service to, because I do feel like you're right that, you know, you can be a, you know, a corporate shark, you know, like in flow state pitching the next, you know, corporate takeover. Um, and people can report. And actually, a lot of this stuff has been, I think, um, bent towards these kinds of ends. You know, like the culture at large is very good at kind of employing, you know, all of these mechanisms and, and value systems to to further its own end. And there's something else, though, I feel like you, you might have touched on in another interview, but just said, you know, like, what is the promise of, of tapping into these states and these grounds of being? You know, is it to get better at the job that you do? And I love how you actually said it in the interview. It said something like, or you may realize it's time to no longer do that thing. You know, and I feel like that to me is like the deeper intelligence that, because if we did attune to ourselves and then we attune to the world, perhaps we could see, wow, the world is in real trouble. Yeah. And, and um, you know, my most recent book, Radical Wholeness, the premise of it is that as a culture, we are desensitized to wholeness. We don't feel it. We don't recognize it. We, we, we don't know what it is to speak from the whole of our being, to listen from the whole of our being. We don't know what it is to feel the present as a whole. I mean, you know, you, you need a 10-day meditation retreat to be, begin to feel that, which is ironic because, because all it is is whole. There, 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 there's no part of the present that, that isn't intractably bound to the whole and so and, and all, all reality is is wholeness so if we've desensitized ourselves to wholeness we've desensitized ourselves to reality and that shows up um and and how to recognize it you know it's not that it's not that wholeness has gone away it's that we've We've contracted into these little islands of desensitivity, and and so yes, you, you know you can remain in a tyrannical, goal-oriented, self-obsessed um, career path and do very well. If you could give your allegiance to wholeness, your whole life would change. I mean, what's what happens, you know, with that tyrannical urge is, is we dissociate from our being and we leave this emptiness within us, this emptiness in the pelvic bowl, this emptiness that cannot be filled and we reach for more money and we reach for more consumer goods and we reach for more distraction trying to fill this and we become an addictive society as a consequence and it it will never be filled 
because it is your being that needs to be recognized that you need to come home to and the 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 restlessness that drives our culture it you know you look at aboriginal assessments of our culture the the okanagans they they um there's this great story i forget i forget the name of the writer i'm sorry but but she talks about being with her father and her grandmother um up on a hill in the reservation they could sort of look down at the at the town below and the grandmother turned to to the son and her granddaughter and said you know these people are insane <laughs> and insane in the okanagan language translates literally as thinking thinking inside the head that's mm. that's their definition of insanity and that's where we are i mean that's what we're we're instructed into and modeled towards and how to escape the insanity you know the only way to do that is to newly sensitize yourself to wholeness and wholeness is not something you know we've got these um really perverse cultural ideas of wholeness we've we've turned wholeness into something that can be contained within a boundary so you know you hear people speak of being whole in body mind and spirit as though these three aspects of the self just needed each to flourish and to come into harmony with the others and you will be whole well that's self-absorption i mean that's not that's not in relationship to the well that leaves the whole world out of the equation of your wholeness it it becomes a a self-fulfilling achievement uh, for yourself alone wholeness wholeness has no boundary and to begin to feel yourself situated within this miraculous living evolving tapestry of life and summoned intimately personally by it is to come home to a a fulfillment that no paycheck could could ever match mm. just letting that linger such a beautiful mm. offer <laughs> Anything else you want to leave the listener with before we close the conversation today? You know, it's one thing to enumerate the disconnections and the 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 self-limitations and divisions. Um and then it's another thing to f- to find your way back and what we're doing in finding our way back is finding our way into felt relationship. So we, we've glommed on to known relationship, and we've got this undercurrent in our culture that says knowledge will save you. Knowledge will save us all. And, uh, you know, the least little question of that assumption, and it pops like a bubble, if knowledge could save us, then we'd be in much, much better shape than we were two thousand years ago, and 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 we face these catastrophic um, challenges, you know, with species extinction and 
insect holocaust and the globe warming. You could go on and on. And every one of those challenges was created by knowledge. We learned how to make plastic. We learned how to make insecticides. We learned how to make fossil fuels and burn them. And, and so, so knowledge is toxic if it's not counterbalanced by self-knowledge. Mm. But self-knowledge we've denatured because we think self-knowledge, well, that's what, you, that's what you gain when you sort of reach down inside yourself and you connect with your truth. No, self-knowledge is what is born within you as you come into felt relationship with the world, mm. you, you stand before a tree and you feel its presence and you are illuminated in a particular way. Or you, you, know, you look at a, a child playing on the sidewalk and, and feel that moment and it, you're illuminated in a certain way. And, and everything you come into felt relationship with illuminates you. And through those relationships... You discover who you are. And the quality, for me, the quality of felt relationship is gentleness. That when you offer gentleness, you begin to feel with a subtlety and a richness and a presence. So first, how to offer that gentleness to yourself and to your breath, and then how to offer that gentleness to the world around you. Mm. beautiful place to end today philip i want to encourage the listener to check out your website uh, which i believe you do offer uh, embodiment process uh, meditations i believe a course as well as your books and i do want to encourage like you just said that you know often the trap i think and in particular men can get into this trap of you know, here we are talking about what essentially feels like a practice, like a deeply embodied felt practice. And I can do this too. I can get in the trap of just reading about it, you know, and saying like, oh, okay, cool. You know, I'm, I got it. And and it like that, again, is trying to approach the thing, but not in the, uh, in the orient orientation that I'll ever get there. So I want to encourage the actual practices of which I've touched in a little bit on your site and have been really grateful for, um, just like we felt just a little, you know, at the beginning of this whole interview where you offered the capacity to get into space. Yeah, I might also mention um, I've got a, an app uh, that's that's on a separate website. It's tep.life. Tep is T-E-P-P -P dot life. And what it is is practices, practices, practices. And, and where my practices sort of gain the most leverage is when they're brought into washing the dishes or shopping in the grocery store. Is your, how, what's happening to your breath? Can you feel your energy at rest on the earth? And, and so it's not, it's not, I mean, there's such value in, in sort of finding a secluded space and doing the practice, but, but you will not interrupt patterns until you bring those practices into the midst of them. Hmm. I think I'll be downloading <laughs> very shortly. Well, Philip, thank you so much for this. This has been really profound for me and uh, certainly worth waiting for from my side. It's, it's been such a joy being with you for this time, Ian. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to today's Mythic Masculine podcast. If you liked what you heard, be sure to subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you're listening, and leave a comment. 
And if you'd like to support future episodes, head over to my Patreon page at patreon.com slash Ian Mack. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash I-A-N-M-A-C-K to become an ongoing funder. Thank you.